blessing to be with you on the Lord's Day, and I invite you to, as we continue in our worship, to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John this morning. As we pick up in this interaction with the woman at the well, we pick up in John chapter 4, and we will focus on verses 11 through 19. would like to extend a very warm welcome to all of our visitors and our newcomers, and we look forward to the opportunity of getting to know you more, and you're encouraged to stick around after service so that we can engage in discussion and encourage one another in the Lord, and we do extend you a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 4, we will focus this morning on verses 11 through 19, but let us read for context from verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore, when the Lord, that is Jesus, knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus Himself did not baptize but His disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. If you would, let us unite our hearts together in prayer and seek the Lord one final time as we come to the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we have heard with our ears the reading of Your Holy Word, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would come and teach us inwardly. 
that He would instruct the inward man, that He would instruct our hearts and our minds and our wills, that He would, by His gracious power, conform Your people more into the image of Christ. As we see our Savior's grace grace shown to this Samaritan woman, Father, we think of our own selves and how because of our sin, we are like the Samaritans. We are by nature separated from true knowledge of God. We are separated, as we read in Leviticus this morning, because of our uncleanness. And yet, in love, You sent Your precious Son, Your only begotten Son, to come and to clothe Himself with flesh, to come and to draw near to sinners so that we might through Him be saved and have everlasting life. Father, we are so unworthy of Your love and grace. Each and every one of us has, as it were, spit in Your face and trampled Your good Word and Your good and righteous law. We have despised Your love and Your care. And we have taken advantage and taken for granted the gifts that You have shown us. And yet, Father, because of Your great love with which You loved us, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we thank You this morning for Christ, the ground of all our hope. We thank You that You have given such a mighty and perfect Savior for our redemption. One who cannot fail us. One who has run the race that was set before Him, enduring the cross and despising the shame and has now sat down at Your right hand because it has been finished. He has entered into His glory and because Christ our head has entered into glory, we know that we too in Him shall reach glory. Father, thank You for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit. The living water that Jesus promised this woman who is within us a fountain springing up to eternal life. Father, we thank You for the power of Your Spirit. How He is relentlessly working in the hearts of His people. Communicating to us all the graces that are found in Christ. Growing us in faith and holiness and righteousness. Growing us in hope and assurance of eternal life to come. And who will one day perfect the work that He has begun. Father, be gracious to us. Encourage our hearts in these truths this morning. We pray for any and all who are here who do not know Christ, who do not have the Spirit of Christ. Father, we pray be merciful to them. Draw them near unto Yourself through Christ. Cause Your Spirit to come in power upon their hearts and upon their minds to reveal to them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Draw near to us, Father, as we come to Your Word now, we pray. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let us begin this morning with our exposition. 
and then we will turn secondly to our doctrine and application. But it's at this point I especially encourage you, if you didn't already, please have your Bibles open, turn to John chapter 4, so that as we begin our exposition, you can see for yourself how God is instructing your mind and your heart from this text. Well, we return now for part two in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And you remember from last week, Jesus has crossed hostile religious barriers that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans in order to minister spiritually to this poor, needy woman. She has come this day to draw water for her body. And Christ, out of sheer grace, has come through Samaria in order to give her living water that will satisfy all the needs of her soul. And while at first, like we saw last week, and we'll see a bit this morning, she displayed a sense of being inflammatory and displayed a a disrespectful attitude towards the Lord Jesus, He still graciously bears with her and bears with her sins and pursues her still. And we'll see today begins to make progress in her soul. And so we'll pick up with our text this morning in verse 11, remembering that in verse 10, Jesus has just told her that He possesses living water to give to her. Verse 11, The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Now this is a theme in John's Gospel. The theme of spiritual blindness. And we've already seen it. We've seen it in chapter 2. When you remember Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body that would be raised after three days and they think He's talking about the physical temple. We saw it in chapter 3 with Nicodemus where Jesus is talking about being born from from above in the Spirit of God. And Nicodemus thinks He's talking about being born from His mother again when He is old. We'll see it again in chapter 4 with the disciples. We'll see it in chapter 6. Jesus here, in speaking to this woman, was using water as an illustration of spiritual things to speak to her about her need for eternal life, and yet she can't see past her present carnal physical needs and appetites. And because of that, because she's focused on her physical thirst, she is confused that Jesus doesn't even have a water pot in His hand in order to draw water from anywhere. But Jesus isn't talking about that kind of water. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just a cross-reference, John chapter 7, verse 37-39, through Jesus on the last day of the feast stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John, the Gospel writer, comments and he says, this Jesus spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive. And so she's confused. And as a result of her confusion and frustration, we see again in her next words here some of her what we might call less than respectful and somewhat inflammatory attitude towards Jesus. Picking up in the middle of verse 11, she says, where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? 
When she realizes that Jesus has no ordinary way of drawing water the way Jacob and anyone else would have, and when she realizes that Jesus is calling His water living water, she gets defensive and, and essentially says to Him, who do you think you are? And by the way, as I mentioned last week, that's actually exactly the point. As Jesus has already said, if you had known who it is who is speaking to you, you would have asked Him, namely the Son of God, and He would have given you living water. She doesn't realize who it is that she's speaking to. And in fact, the way it's worded in Greek, the construction, it's not just an innocent question. She's actually making the, the assertion, certainly you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Now, that's ironic that she is taking such pride in her lineage. Considering, remember what I mentioned last week, the Samaritans, um, the Samaritans had no right to identify themselves as the sons of Jacob. The Samaritans were a group who had intermingled in marriage with the Gentiles, and they were Gentile mixtures and apostates, and they had fully departed from Jacob's religion. Jacob gave this well to his sons, not to the Samaritans. And so Jesus could have said to her, yes, I am greater than Jacob, and yes, I have greater water than Jacob has, and you're not even a descendant of Jacob yourself. But instead, he lets her insults go again, and he continues to instruct her in verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water... And there he's speaking about the well, Jacob's well. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is saying to this presently spiritually blind woman, woman, you have far bigger concerns than quenching your physical thirst. You, woman, can drink from this well, Jacob's well, to your heart's content, and you're just going to be back here again tomorrow just as thirsty as you are today. But note how differently he describes the gift of the Spirit to the Christian. He says, the one who drinks this water that I will give to him shall never thirst. And we understand, of course, he's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about the thirstings of their soul, their spiritual life. He he doesn't mean here when he says that they will never thirst, he doesn't mean that their, their souls will never have longings and desires again. He means that all of those longings and desires will be met by a never ending supply of the graces that the Spirit of God supplies his people. Matthew Henry said, God's people have a longing thirst, but not a languishing thirst. And that is what the imagery of a fountain, that's the language that Jesus uses. Notice He doesn't call it a well, but a fountain. That's what the imagery of a fountain of water springing up within them is meant to illustrate. Right? You think about a well. A well can run dry, can't it? And he's saying, contrary to this water, the Spirit is not a a static source that can be used up and depleted. 
but rather like a fountain that is constantly bubbling up and like the fountain in which you can dip your cup and before you even bring it to your lips, that fountain has already replenished what you took from it, so the Spirit and His graces never deplete. He's inexhaustible in the believer. And notice Jesus uses the language of springing up, which which speaks to the strong and the vigorous influence of the Spirit's work within a believer. Right? A Christian is not one whose life looks exactly the same as it did before he came to know Christ. If you possess the Spirit, you have the gracious, powerful influences of the Spirit welling up within you. And notice Jesus says it wells up, springing up into or unto eternal life. That's an amazing statement. When the Spirit is given by Christ to a sinner and he is brought or she is brought in a moment from death to spiritual life, that's an amazing thing in and of itself. But the Spirit is not satisfied merely with grace begun. He will see to it that grace is completed. He will well up within His people more and more as Christ is formed in them until He achieves the perfection of His work. What Jesus here calls eternal life. And so, yes, to answer the woman's question, indeed, this living water is greater than Jacob's water. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now some people, some commentators, and this is possible, they think that the woman's tone here with Jesus is still mocking Jesus' claim and taunting Him, if you will. Um, And and the way they read it and understand it is, is as though... Uh, they assume this woman clearly by this point understands already that Jesus is talking about a different kind of water than Jacob's water. But that in order to taunt Jesus, she is saying to Him essentially, if you claim to have this water, then show it, show it to Me. Give it to Me. You boast much about having it. Show it to Me. Now, that's possible. I mean, it's hard to read tone from, from text. Um, some, some of the earlier things we've seen that she said is much more plain grammatically that there's attitude behind what she says. This one honestly could go either way. Others, and I would lean towards this, believe that her request here is sincere though it is made in serious ignorance. Okay? So she seems to be understanding that Jesus offers her something very good and useful to her, and therefore she's interested, but her mind is still set on earthly things. Right? I mean, He very plainly offered her eternal life, and she simply wants to not be thirsty anymore and to not have to come to this well to draw water. And so either as a result of her ignorance or as a result of her being inflammatory again, or perhaps a mixture of both, Jesus strikes the woman's conscience with a conviction of sin. Notice verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Now, that, if you're reading that for the first time, that seems like quite the change in subject from what they've been talking about. 
But here's the thing we need to understand. It is not without purpose. It is part of His strategy in His evangelism with her. Seeing, I mean, Jesus knows her heart. Obviously, He's heard her words. Seeing that she is not yet sensible to His meaning, and perhaps she's even still taunting Him, He intends now to graciously wound this woman. Not to wound her unto death, but to wound her in order to heal her. She is so fixed on worldly things that she can't even comprehend her need for what Jesus is talking about. And so He designs to bring her under the conviction of sin in order to reveal to her her true spiritual poverty, her need of Christ, and in order to further make known to her who it is she is speaking to. Jesus says, go, call your husband and come here. Jesus is very tactful here. As a prophet, which he is, and she confesses him to be in verse 19, he, he knows the situations with this woman's marriages. Right? You remember John chapter 2? He needs no one to testify to him about man, for he knows what is in man. But here he graciously draws her out, as it were, and gives her the opportunity to be honest. But instead, notice she tries to evade the subject and evade the question. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Now, she didn't like that subject being brought up. Jesus had struck a nerve with her, and he knew it, and she knew it, and he had brought up an area of her life of which she is ashamed. And so she seeks to give a false impression with what is technically a true statement. Okay? Probably, most likely, her intention here is to give Jesus the impression that she's either never been married or that she's a widow, and let's just drop it at that, Jesus, and move on to a different subject. Technically, she did have no husband presently, but there's more to the story than she desires to let on. And by the way, just a note of learning from that, how creative the carnal and sinful mind is at avoiding sin's exposure. How good sinners are at contriving devices by which they keep their sins concealed. Even with half-true statements. But she's not talking to any normal man. She is talking to the one who looks upon the heart. And so notice how Jesus brings home the conviction to her own heart. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have, you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Now, by the way, it's very likely that we're just getting John's summary report of what Jesus said to this woman. Because in verse 39, the woman goes away and describes. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. So it's very likely there was more detail of her, him opening up her life and her sin. But notice he first gives her a narrative of her past life. Never met this woman. And he says to her, you have had five husbands. Now, John doesn't explicitly state this, but I assume we all understand that Jesus' point here is not to point out this woman's sorrows. It's not like Jesus is saying you've had five husbands whom you had to bury. But rather, His point is to point out her sin. This is apparently a 
a promiscuous woman who has dealt very treacherously with God's covenant of marriage. Either she had run away from her husbands and married others, or perhaps by her, her own um, disloyal conduct, he, she had provoked them over and over to divorce her, or perhaps she unlawfully divorced them. She knows her guilt, and Christ knows her guilt. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and the one you now have is not your husband. So not only in the past have you dealt treacherously with God's covenant of marriage, but even now you're living with a man that you're not married to. Now notice, very important Christian, notice the tenderness with which Christ addresses her sin. He does reprove her and exposes her, no doubt. There's nowhere for this woman to hide. But he doesn't do so in a provoking and condescending way. Right? He doesn't call her a prostitute or, or some, of, some of the other words that people might use of a woman like this. He simply lays out her past and her present and the situation to her, and he lets her conscience draw the conclusion. Ma- Matthew, Matthew Henry said, Reproofs are usually most profitable when we are least provocative. And Jesus says to her, woman, as far as it goes, what you have said is true. You presently don't have a husband, but woman, there's more to the story than that, isn't there? Verse 19, as we'll close our exposition here. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus is making progress with this woman. Notice she doesn't deny that what he has said is true. And what is commendable about this woman is that she takes this reproof even though it hit her in a very sore spot. She doesn't just get impassioned and insult Jesus and say, you're just doing what all the other Jews do. But she rather handles being told her fault. And indeed, it seems at this point that she's beginning to respect Him more. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Notice how Christ piercing knowledge of her life is revealing to her more who it is who is speaking to her. He's no longer just a Jew in her eyes like he was earlier in the chapter. He is now a prophet. And by the way, we'll, we'll start with verse 20 next week, but I'll just make a comment because it's all connected. Um, there's question about how her next words function in this discourse. Some think that by, in verse 20, her raising that, the ancient debate about where the worship of God is supposed to take place, some people think that she's actually just again trying to evade the discussion and let's raise this issue now about whether it should, the temple should be at Mount Gerizim or at Jerusalem. However, it seems to me, and Calvin agrees and Matthew Henry takes this view as well, It seems to me that verse 19 is the point of her changing her attitude towards Christ. It seems that His piercing knowledge of her life has arrested her attention and brought her under conviction. And she now seeks to be taught from this prophet about the right way to worship God. And I think that's rather the better way to understand verse 20 is that she realizes I'm talking to a real, genuine prophet of God. And her heart is being changed and she therefore wisely seeks the counsel of this prophet 
where and how ought we to rightly worship God. But we'll leave that discussion for for next time when we pick up in verse 20. That concludes our exposition. Let's move into our doctrine and application. Again, this morning, for the sake of time, I've combined doctrine and the application of this text to us as His church. So I want to open up three things regarding how we are instructed from this text doctrinally and practically the applications that that has for us as God's people. And I'll give them to you one at a time as we work our way through them. Number one, doctrine slash application. Number one, we are taught in this passage the effects of sin on the mind or understanding and the need of the Spirit of God to enlighten our minds. We are taught very plainly here the effects of sin on our mind and the necessity of the Spirit enlightening our minds. I mentioned this is a theme. And I think I passed over it, Nicodemus, and so I'm going to emphasize it here. What explanation is there for a man like Nicodemus being as clueless as he was in spiritual things even though he was a teacher of Israel and exposed to the Scriptures? What explains this woman having such plain explanations about living water and eternal life being offered to her, and yet it's like Jesus' words simply go in one ear and out the other? The biblical answer to that is sin. And more specifically, it is sin's effects on our understanding. Right? When we say that we believe in total depravity, right? we use that term often, when we say that we believe in total depravity, that doesn't mean we believe that all men and women are as bad as they could be. It means that we believe there is not one faculty within man that has not been tainted and perverted by sin. Not the least of which is the faculty of our mind and our understanding. Theologically, it's called the noetic effects of the fall. Not noetic, noetic effects of the fall. Ephesians 4.18 Paul commands Christians who are new creations, they now have the Spirit. He says, Christians, no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened. Okay? It's not like the effects of the fall simply affects our wills and our appetites and our desires, but our minds remain perfectly intact and unimpaired as Adam's was in the state of innocency. The mind of the unregenerate person is broken by sin. Not only in the sense of what we call natural miseries, things like memory loss, which is not sinful in and of itself, but is the result of sin, but more fundamentally, in the unregenerate person who does not know God, there is a moral rupture between their mind and God's truth so that the, mis- uh, so that the unregenerate misinterpret evidence due to a love of self and a hatred of God. All of you who are Christians can think back on when you weren't a Christian and how you used your reason in the service not of serving God, but of denying God. Of explaining the things of God away. 
Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The mind and the understanding is what drives our lives. And our minds by nature have been corrupted by sin and therefore need to be renewed by grace. It's very important that we understand the difference between gifts and grace. Only Christians have grace. But unbelievers can share in what we call gifts. The unregenerate can have gifts in their intellect. And in fact, they can even improve those gifts by the use of the right means of improving their thinking. In fact, ungodly people can even have more gifts in their mind and their intellect than godly people have. Right? For instance, at universities, you will find men and women with outstanding ability to advance in things like understanding the natural sciences that surpasses the the abilities of most Christian men and women. And yet it's those same people, though they're brilliant in one area, it's those same people who believe myths about where we came from, and they use all of their mind's power to believe myths and deny the God whose world they study. And what that illustrates is that gifts, as great as they may be, can never compensate for the damage that has been done by sin. A, a gifted intellect apart from grace is simply, a gift, is simply gifted at sinning. John Owen said, quote, the knowledge of a proud man, and by that he means an unregenerate man, he said the knowledge of a proud man is the throne of Satan in his mind. Close quote. Because Christian, here's the thing. Just as we saw with Nicodemus, just as the unregenerate cannot will himself to become a Christian, so also he cannot think or reason himself into becoming a Christian. Because his understanding is darkened and warped. Christian, this is why our unbelieving friends who consider their own intellect to be an infallible guide that can lead them to know and discover truth and God must be told that their very understanding is a traitor and they don't even know it. Because what they don't realize is that their mind is fallen and therefore, because they are fallen and sinful, their mind admits and dismisses evidence about God with bias. Which is why what the sinner needs decisively is not the mere improvement of gifts, but the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the new birth. That's what this woman needs. We sing, uh, Blessed Jesus at Thy Word, 220, the second stanza. A great stanza. All our knowledge, sense, and sight in deepest what? Darkness shrouded until Your Spirit breaks our night with the beams of truth unclouded. You alone to God canst win us. You must work all good within us. That's a description of what needs to happen to the unregenerate man. And brothers and sisters, this woman... This Samaritan woman is no worse than any of us. 
We are not smarter than her. We ought not to look down our noses at her for her ignorance. You too, like me, at one point thought that the cross of Christ was foolishness. Because you did not have the Spirit of God and therefore you could not comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. And you thought that way in your darkened understanding like this woman until 2 Corinthians 4.6 happened to you. When the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness shone in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christian, we, I know we say this often, but Christian, really, really, you are not what you are today because you are smarter than anyone else. There are unbelievers right now that are way smarter than you and way smarter than me. You are a Christian because of grace. And even though you might not have all the giftings that others might have, and even though the world now thinks you're a fool, you actually know the Lord because He changed your mind and changed your heart to fear Him. That's the first thing. We're taught of the effects of sin on our minds and the necessity of the Spirit to enlighten our minds. Number two, doctrine slash application. We learn here the importance of conviction of sin in our evangelism. We learn here of the importance of the conviction of sin in our evangelism. Jesus said to this woman, in order to bring her to a a sensibility of her own spiritual need, He said to her, go, call your husband. And those, as we saw, are words that cut, but they are wounds that healed. I remember once as a young Christian talking with someone about Christ. She was an unbeliever. And we're talking about sin, what it means to be a sinner. And at one point she said, she said, you know, I've always thought of myself as one who from time to time slips up and does bad things, but I've never thought of myself as a sinner. Christian, realize that that is another effect that sin has upon the sinner. Okay? Sin, not, not only uh, does it turn us away from God, but it also then causes us to flatter ourselves. That, that's not such a bad thing. Sin comforts us in the warm blanket of self-flattery and vain confidence. That, that my, my standing right now is not anything to be concerned about. I mean, even in churches, there are sitting in pews, unregenerate people like this woman who literally are more concerned about their lunch after the sermon than they are about their soul because their dreadful condition before God is never talked about and preached to them. And quite frankly, you talk to someone like that about Christ and the offer of salvation from sin, it makes them wonder, salvation from what? Just like this woman who thought her biggest problem in life is just worldly concerns, like not having to come here to draw from this well every day, there are people today who have the same worldly concerns. That, sure, if Jesus can get me rich, 
Or if he can fix my marriage problems or my depression problems, sure, give me that water. But this other living water that you're talking about, I really don't understand my need for it. And part of the reason for that is because they haven't come under the conviction of the utter sinfulness of their sin. Mark it, Christian. The soul that has been made to tremble at the sinfulness of sin is in a much better place to feel their need of the Gospel. And I know there are unique things about Jesus being a prophet here. He was able to know things that ordinary people like you and I can't know. But the principle is there. And by the way, this isn't the only time Jesus does this. With this woman, it's her issues of marriage and promiscuity. With the rich young ruler, it's his covetousness and his love of stuff. With the religious leaders, it's their hypocrisy and their love of the praise of man. And the point is, Jesus saw that bringing sinners to a place where they have to face their sin is a key and valuable component to evangelism. The Puritan John Flavel said, that sinners support their presumptuous hope, that is, their presumptuous hope that everything's fine between me and God, nothing to be concerned about here. He said sinners support their presumptuous hope with ecclesiastical privilege, so maybe they go to church, out of ignorance, out of self-deceit, claiming signs of grace in eternal mer- external mercies, Right, So something nice happens to them and they interpret that that means God is totally at peace with me. Superficial responses to the Gospel and comparing themselves to worse sinners. And he says this, all of which Satan uses to blind and ruin them. And therefore, Christian, they need the awakening efficacy of the law of God. Now, Christian, there is a right way to do that and there is a wrong way to do that. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus here is careful with the scalpel. He's not reckless. If you're reckless with the scalpel, you're, you're very liable to kill your patient. But if you're careful with the scalpel, you might save their life. He doesn't condescend into verbal beatings. Okay? He doesn't deal with her, by the way, either the same way that He gives sharp rebukes to the Pharisees. And I hope we're all growing in that. There are different ways to speak and deal with different people in different places. Rather, He graciously brought her to a place where her sin could not be denied, but He also did not cross the line into giving offense. Into being condescending. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Jesus' example. We need to imitate both His method and His carefulness. As I mentioned, there's wrong ways to do this. Okay, I'll give you a couple. One wrong way, is, as I've already said, is to come off condescending and unloving and judgmental like you don't even care about this person. You, you just want to throw their sins in their face as an end in itself. Okay, Jesus did not do that. And we need to understand there is an unhelpful way of exposing the sins of others all the while forgetting, but for the grace of God, there go I. We we should always remember that when we are exposing the sins of others because it will temper our our approach and our attitude. But a second unhelpful way is to be too generic with the scalpel. Okay, Notice how specific Jesus is. 
Again, I know there are unique things that Jesus knows that we can't possibly know, but we could find out through conversation, understanding someone. Um, There's a danger also in being too generic in our bringing them to see sin for what it is, that they may not even be brought under conviction at all. So I'll give you an example. Sometimes Christians learn uh, what we might call evangelistic methods. That's just kind of, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong to get started with some of these, but they take the method and they think, this is how I need to interact with every single person. Um, And oftentimes it's basically, you know, like a script you work through, and you come up to someone and you start going through, you know, here's this commandment, have you ever broken that one? And they say yes, and here's another one, have you ever broken that one? And the assumption is, if you can get the person to admit that they've broken any of these commandments, that you have... The the assumption is that you've been successful in bringing them under conviction of sin. But that's not necessarily true. Because for that person, they they might still just feel like, yeah, I have some intermittent infractions at times and some failures at times. But they may not be brought to feel the pervasive nature of their rebellion against God. Notice Christ's approach. I think this is instructive. He homes in on particular sins that consume the person. He goes after things that he knows plague this person's conscience. This is something that identifies their life in terms of sinful patterns. And as I say, for this woman, it was her, her lust or whatever it was. For the rich young ruler, it's his, his covetousness, his love of things. And Jesus finds that and He identifies it and graciously applies pressure there. Now Christian, the takeaway for us, I know you're not a prophet like Christ. That's obvious. Okay? But, Christian, utilize judicious wisdom in how you might awaken sinners to a sense of their sinfulness before a holy God. And like I say, that takes wisdom. Sometimes you come across a person and they are already well aware of their sins. And in fact, they've been groaning under their sins for quite some time and they're asking you, what must I do to get rid of this guilt? In that case, don't do this. In that case, they're already ready for the Gospel. Pour out large measures of the grace of Christ in the Gospel and urge them to find life and to find forgiveness and a pure conscience before God in Christ. Right? Don't be the person who breaks the bruised reed. But other times where there is just vain confidence, and you're looking into their eyes and you know there is just no spiritual comprehension here whatsoever, and they are disinterested by all means till the soil of their hearts with a conviction of sin to prepare them for the Gospel. Try, as Flavel put it, John Flavel, try to draw up one's sins like a vast and terrifying army that besieges the soul so that their soul stands mute and self-condemned at the bar of conscience. Christian, let us learn the method of Christ in dealing with souls. Let us seek to grow in wisdom and to imitate Christ here. Third thing that we'll close with this morning. Third doctrine slash application. We're instructed in this passage regarding Christ and the gift of His Spirit. 
We are instructed of Christ and the gift of His Spirit. Jesus said to this woman, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give to him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. In my opinion, the ministry of the Holy Spirit rightly understood, and I emphasize rightly understood, is one of the most neglected subjects in theology today. I'm not talking about the charismatic, you know, I know the uh, charismatic movement, I know they talk about the Spirit of, of God a lot, but they have a very different and wrong understanding of the Spirit's role. But in terms of opening up the role of the Spirit and His connection with Christ is something that is too often neglected, I think. Let me ask you this. Is the Gospel about Christ or about the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is yes. Right? Because while we distinguish the persons, there is an inseparable connection between Christ and the Spirit He gives to dwell in us. Notice from this text who it is who gives the Spirit. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him. Christ is the one who gives His Spirit to His people. Chapter 1, verse 33, John said that He, speaking of Christ, will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Because here's what we need to understand. You remember we saw at the end of John 3 how Jesus has the Spirit without measure. Because He possesses the Spirit without measure, He is the one who can then pour out richly His Spirit upon His people. It's for that reason that we are said in Romans 8, verse 9, to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. But, here's something that's not as frequently understood and, and grasped by the Christian, I think, as much as it should be. The blessing of possessing the Spirit of Christ is that He brings Christ to us. Okay? The indwelling of the Spirit is Christocentric. And by the way, it's not my point this morning, but that is one major criticism I would give of the charismatic movement's emphasis on the Holy Spirit is that His ministry has almost little or nothing to do with Christ. And yet, in the Scriptures, He's inseparably bound up with Christ. So for instance, Romans 8-9, I already alluded to it. Paul says, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And then the very next words in verse 10, he says, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. According to Paul, having the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you is to have Christ dwelling in you. Jesus will bear this out in much more detail later in John's Gospel. I'll give you one example. You can turn there if you want. John 16.14. John 16.14. In the context, it's the upper room discourse. Jesus is comforting His disciples as He is about to depart from this world. And He's promising them the comfort of the Spirit that He's going to send. And notice how He describes the Spirit's ministry in John 16.14. He says, He, the Spirit, will glorify Me. For He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. 
And then notice verse 15. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said He will take of mine and declare it to you. There is in the Gospel this Trinitarian descent that just as the Son came to reveal the Father and to accomplish the redemption that the Father planned, so the Spirit is sent into our hearts to reveal Christ to us and to apply His benefits to us. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ because without the Spirit, you don't have union with Christ. Because Christ is communicated to His people by His Spirit. Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, said this, quote, All that Christ did would have profited us nothing if the Holy Spirit did not come into our heart and bring it all home. And so, Christian, if you take nothing else away but this, glory in the fact that God has given you His Spirit. Christian, Christ pouring out His blessed Spirit upon you is Christ communicating to you all the boundless gifts of His now glorified state. The Spirit is the gift that brings all other gifts with it. The Spirit continually takes what is Christ and He gives it to us, Christ's people. And therefore, Jesus' title here of living water is quite appropriate for the Spirit. It is living water. The Spirit is living water because it comes from Him who Hebrews 7.16 has the power of an indestructible life. Right? John 5, as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted also to the Son to have life in Himself. And Christ now mediates that spiritual life to His people by His Spirit. And it begins, at least in our experience, it begins in regeneration and the new birth. The new birth that He's been talking to Nicodemus about, that this woman needs. By what power does the Spirit raise people from the dead spiritually? By the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That was the beginning, Christian. When you were in a moment, even if you don't know when that moment happened, when you were brought from darkness to light and from death to life, that was the beginnings of Christ's life in you. Given to you by the Spirit. But not only that, this living water springs up within the believer leading to eternal life. I already mentioned that in our exposition. He who receives the Spirit will most definitely make it to glory. Again, why? Because Christ is already in glory. He has already finished the race set before Him and He has become uh, the victorious mediator and victor between God and His church and He will not fail by His Spirit to bring all and every one of His people home. So you've got regeneration, you've got glorification, and now in between those two points, Jesus says the Spirit is a fountain within us presently. Such that every thirst we have, spiritually speaking, and every need we have for grace 
is met by the Spirit of Christ. Christian, because there is no end of graces in Christ, there is no need that we can have that cannot be supplied by the Spirit of Christ. And so Christian, look to the Spirit to give you more of Christ. That that is the fight of faith, isn't it? Walk by the Spirit? That's what it means. Look to the Spirit. Depend on the Spirit more so that He forms Christ in you. Christian, are you lacking faith? Christ had no lack and therefore His Spirit can help you. Are you thirsting and dissatisfied with your level of sanctification and you want more? Look to the Spirit of holiness who gives to us the holiness of Christ. Who for our sakes sanctified Himself so that we can be sanctified by Him. Christian, the believer, though he thirst and thirst and thirst again and again, the Spirit of Christ rises within Him to meet every single need. Amen. Let us pray and let us thank God. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we can read of these things, and not only that, Father, but that we can actually say that we've experienced these things. We thank You that as Your people, we're not just reading these words on a page and thinking of others who have had the blessing of having their lives changed by Christ, but that You've been gracious to us. Father, we pray that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as Your people to grow more in all of the graces that Christ communicates to His people. Help us, Father, to walk by the Spirit and to not gratify the lusts of the flesh, but that we would look more and more to the Spirit of God that You have put within our hearts who works within us all of the benefits of Christ's person and work. Father, cause us to find our salvation in Christ and to root every element of it in Christ. Father, when we're struggling in our holiness, help us to remember that the only way we can be made holy is by looking to Christ who sanctified Himself. Lord, when we're struggling with assurance and faith, help us to look to Christ who grew in assurance and in His faith. We pray, Lord, that we would locate all these things in Christ and given to us by Your blessed and kind Spirit. Father, we pray this morning for any who are here who are unbelievers, who are still blind in their sin, their minds are still darkened, who cannot contemplate the things of God. We pray that You would break through with Your beams of truth. That You would take away the darkness. That You would bring clarity and truth and humility to acknowledge the truth for what it is. Give them new minds and new hearts, we pray, that they would join in our joy of knowing God, of being redeemed from our sins, and having the hope of eternal life within us. 
Father, thank You for the Lord's Day. We pray that You would be with Your people the rest of this day. We pray that You would bless our fellowship together. Father, those who are perhaps eating together, we pray that You would give them fruitful conversation, spiritual conversation, applying Your Word to one another, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day of Christ draw near. Lord, we pray that You would encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith for the week ahead. We thank You for Your mercies to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.